0: Judgment is very clear. With all the elements of proof, Jan Bailey is a murderer. And he killed my mother 22 years ago. So it's a victory for the justice. It's a victory for the truth. And now, Ireland will have to extradite Yann Bainet and we will put all the pressure everywhere to get the justice done. The justice had been said and now the justice had to be done in France, in Ireland, wherever. But today everybody must know understand that Jan Bailey is a murderer and we must denounce it. How do you feel today? I feel not good, I feel... I have a big emotion for my mother and the truth is very important for us. For her, for all the people who lived around this monster, monster. So we are we are happy. We are happy. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, before I jump back into the case, I want to give the usual health warning. This is not an easy listen. Murder and violence are very serious and traumatic matters, and at the end of this case is a family who are deeply traumatized and still searching for answers. And there's a lot of emotion attached to Sophie's case, some of that pain and raw emotion you just heard in the clip. That was Pierre-Louis, Sophie's son, talking outside the court at the conclusion of the trial in Paris in June 2019. His pain is palpable, and he makes his view very plain. But let me say this, there's no closure or relief, and it doesn't end there. Sophie's murder was in 1996, And the French trial took place in 2019, so that's 23 years later. And of course, that takes a toll on a family. And it's further compounded by the frustration that there are two systems in two different countries. One that found Bailey guilty of murdering Sophie in absentia and sentenced him to 25 years in prison. And then the other in Ireland, whereby the Director of Public Prosecutions, James Hamilton, stated that there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute Bailey. The response of the two systems and professionals in it could not be more polarizing or different. Yet the decisions were made based on the same information, facts and evidence. It's staggering, really. As I've said from the beginning, my aim and focus is to examine the facts and the evidence, and more importantly, the totality of circumstances in this case that pointed in one direction, according to the magistrates in France, as well as to many others, including the guards in Ireland. Now they arrested Bailey, not once, but twice. The second time was on the 27th of January, 1998, Bailey's 42nd birthday. This time he was arrested by the Dublin-based National Bureau for Criminal Investigation, and some of his belongings were also seized. Again, he was released after 12 hours for lack of evidence. Now, according to Irish law, Bailey can be arrested a third time, but only if charges are brought against him. More on that in the next episode. In the last episode, I focused on Bailey's history of domestic abuse and violence towards women. And there's still some important ground to cover. It's really interesting to me that Jules was more upset with the media than she was with Bailey and his behaviour towards her. Now that again paints a picture of how she views herself, her self-esteem and her self-worth. And it also tells me she bought into his narrative. And I've no doubt that it has been a horrific time but she minimizes and downplays the violence and abuse towards her at every opportunity. And with Jules, I see vulnerability. And the journalist and author, Michael Sheridan, called her vulnerable too, interestingly. Now, as a repeat victim, she also appears somewhat introverted and worn out and worn down. And I guess that's not surprising. Now, another standout segment for me was caught on camera in the docuseries Murder at the Cottage, and it was Jules's 70th birthday party. Now, if you haven't watched the docuseries that aired on Sky, Jules is celebrating her significant birthday in a pub surrounded by some of her family and friends. Now, we get a front row seat to watching Bailey get progressively more and more inebriated and he takes over everything. He sings out of tune and incoherently, and he recites poetry. In fact, he makes it all about him, and it's cringeworthy. But actually, it's more than that. It shows his levels of narcissism. It's visible for everyone to see. He's so wrapped up in himself, and he's totally tone-deaf and oblivious to the temperature in the room. Rather tellingly, Jules just takes it all in her stride. She says nothing. She doesn't react. If anything, she enables it by quietly letting him carry on. And she does give him her attention, somewhat begrudgingly, but she still does nonetheless. And it strikes me that she's used to this. This is business as usual. She and everyone else who are there, well, they just carry on. Quietly talking and socialising. Now remember, it's Jules' 70th birthday. Everyone there should be celebrating her, including Bailey. This is his life partner. It should be 100% about Jules. This is, in fact, the one time when she should be the centre of attention, introvert or not. These are the people who are supposed to care for her and love her. But yet again, it's the In Bailey show. Jules just seems so worn down to me. There's no sparkle. There's no joy de vivre, even at this celebration of her life. But this just seems to be so normal for her. And it made me feel watching it very sad and somewhat nauseated. And I have to wonder, watching this, whether Bailey met her needs on any level. I mean, when you strip the relationship right back, what did he bring to it? How did he enhance her emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, financially, or sexually? Have her needs ever been taken into account? Now, perhaps they were once, and perhaps I'm being unfair because I'm seeing it through the lens of the docu series. but it appears to me that her needs are playing second fiddle to his in every way from what I can see from this scene and others'. So here's one of my BGOs, a blinding glimpse of the obvious. This is not what a healthy relationship looks like. And it's a question that I always ask victims when I'm working with them, so that I understand what's really going on in a relationship and understand the emotional hygiene and health of a relationship. I'll ask about whether someone's needs are being met. Oftentimes, a victim has no idea what I'm talking about when I ask them that question because they're so used to meeting the abuser's needs in every way. And their needs, well, they don't even feature. So oftentimes, the women that I work with, well, they don't even know what their needs are. Now, interestingly, I talk about this a lot when I'm training professionals, and I talk about the culture and how girls and boys are raised. And being a woman, a girl, well, we're taught from a young age to put others' needs above our own. And unfortunately for many that sticks across our life course and in particular in our significant relationships. I'll say more about that another time, but I have to wonder what Jules' upbringing was like. Now one insight I can share is that when her own mother gave evidence at the 2003 trial, when she was asked about the domestic abuse, she answered that the bruises fade. Well, that's a deeply troubling and concerning answer. And that's what she's saying about her own daughter being seriously beaten up. These were serious assaults on Jules. Now, it's interesting to me that she's not outraged or alarmed or concerned or disgusted. Her attitude is, in fact, much more that domestic abuse is expected. It's just a byproduct of being a woman and being in a relationship. I mean, what the what? But that's what we're talking about, that culturally, oftentimes domestic abuse is just accepted, particularly in certain cultures. And what I'll share with you is that many victims of abuse have said exactly the same thing to me. They say things like, well, the bruises fade and the bones will mend. But the psychological stuff that happens, the emotional and psychological abuse is the worst. You can't put a bandage around it. You've got nothing to show for it, and it stays with you. That's what they see as the worst part. But unfortunately, in these statements, it means that abuse has just become normalized. And remember what Jules said, that there are other women who suffered far worse than she has. So again, they may even grade it and see themselves either not as a victim or that it's not as bad as somebody else. And therefore, Jules's mum didn't really think anything of the abuse that was happening to Jules. And let's not forget that two of Jules' previous partners also abused her. So there's a life course history there. And I don't know for sure, but I have to ask, did Jules' mum experience abuse as well, and Jules in her childhood? Because unfortunately, domestic abuse is very prevalent. It's much more common than what people think, and unfortunately, it tends to be intergenerational. The statistic that I often quote is that one in three women experience it in their lifetime. But if you add in coercive control, and that's not often used within a definition and certainly within surveys when victims are asked, and even if coercive control is asked, most people don't even know what it is. And if you factor in coercive control, and if women were educated to understand exactly what that means before they answer the survey or poll, well, I suspect that number would be higher. Yes, higher, you heard that right. And it is oftentimes women that we're talking about, women who are the victims, because it links to the patriarchy. Yep, there's the P word, the P bomb's gone in, having power and control over. And when those around you, when they normalize it or minimize it or downplay it, or perhaps see it as part and parcel of your lot, And that it's expected because you did or didn't do X, Y, or Z. Well, some people are shocked by this or surprised, but I'm not. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy and health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now, they've done the maths and Factor is less expensive than takeout. And every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormills.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst 50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst 50 at FactorMills F A C T O R. Factormills.com slash Crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. Let's talk makeup for a moment. What's your daily makeup routine? Are you an out-of-the-door with a messy bun and mascara vibe? Or are you quaff to the max? Or maybe you're somewhere in between, like me. Thrive Cosmetics' beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, high-performance and trademark formulas, and uncompromising standards. Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are emerging from homelessness. It's a beauty brand and a philosophy that goes beyond skin deep by empowering women. Did you know the first product they launched were false eyelashes, which was motivated by the fact that cancer patients lose their eyelashes? How amazing is that? I love their new Sheer Strength Lip Plumping Peptide Gloss. It gives you a visibly fuller looking, luscious lips without fillers or uncomfortable stinging sensations. It's also ultra-hydrating and there are ten shades to choose from which enhance your natural lips, six shines and four shimmers. Support and empower women and treat yourself or a loved one. Thrive Cosmetics is a luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crime analyst. That's thrivecosmetics, C A U S E M E T I C S dot com slash crime analyst for 20% off your first order. What consistently surprises, angers, and frustrates me simultaneously is the lack of focus on the abusers and their behaviour. Everyone is so busy focusing on the victims, what she did or what she didn't do. And it's the victims that are counted by police and in government figures and surveys and campaigns. And most people, well, most people know someone who's experienced abuse and or who were raped. But can you say the same thing about knowing an abuser and or a rapist? And who counts the abusers and the rapists? Who tracks them? And where are the targeted messages and campaigns aimed at them? I was thinking about this, and I can only think of three campaigns across my 25-year career that did this. In fact, two of them we ran in the Metropolitan Police Service when I was at New Scotland Yard, One was aimed at domestic abusers under the strap line, Enough is Enough, where we targeted and talked directly to abusers and said that their partner's silence no longer protected them and we would come after them. And the other was a targeted campaign at those who commit sexual violence. Well, the third campaign, well, that's more recent, and it's a Scottish campaign. And kudos to them for the campaign, Don't Be That Guy. Have you seen it? If you haven't, I highly recommend you check it out and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But that's all I can recall across my 25-year career and those ones are focused in the UK. But admittedly, I don't know of any in the US or Australia. And of course, there may well be more, but that's all I can recall off the top of my head. You see, most campaigns focus on the victims, key messages to them. Don't suffer in silence and the like. And that's what we need to change. And that's what I've been lobbying Parliament in England and Wales to do. The perpetrators should be the focus. We should send out a clear message to them that their behaviour will not be tolerated and that they will be proactively targeted and tracked nationally in the UK, America and Australia, well, across Europe or indeed across the globe. But do listen to my earlier episodes on my campaign for police, prison and probation services in the UK to proactively track and manage serial and repeat domestic abusers and stalkers. And whilst you're listening, take stock at the resistance to do this and at how little women's lives are valued. And there are some real parallels with what's written in the DPP report on this very case to what's going on present day including the reluctance to believe women when they disclose abuse, male violence being routinely excused and justified, and the deafening silence around taking action and holding violent and abusive men accountable for their behaviour. There's more to come on this later on in the episode. But this is all tightly interwoven. You see, when I train police and others, I always talk about the micro and the macro, the specifics of a case, but also the big picture. You see, it may be new information to you, but going back to this case, Jules' daughter Ginny Thomas, well, she made a statement to the police alleging that Bailey made a sexual pass at her just months after she turned 18 on Christmas Day in 1995. Just let that sink in. So she alleged Bailey, her mother's boyfriend, was interested in her sexually. And Jules must have known this too. But that's not all. She said that she knew Bailey had beaten her mother several times. In her police statement, she detailed the night of her mother's birthday in April 1996 when they'd been out at the Courtyard Bar for a music concert and Bailey and her mother had had an argument. Jules had a bite mark on her arm and Ginny asked her what had happened and Jules told her Bailey had bitten her. Ginny said that she went to Bailey and demanded an explanation for the assault. In her statement, she said he told her he didn't have to justify himself to her and didn't say any more about it. Ginny said that Bailey assaulted her mother, Jules Thomas, again two weeks later. Now, that was the May assault in 1996, which I talked about in the last episode. Ginny said that she was at home with her sister Fenella one morning in the first week of May 1996 when she heard a scream coming from her mother's room. She went to see what had happened and found her mother badly injured. In her police statement, she said this. On entering the room, I noticed her eye was swollen and bleeding. She had scratches on the right side of her face under her eye. She was bleeding from the mouth, and I noticed that the inside of her mouth was torn, and large tufts of my mother's hair had been pulled out. I also saw a bite mark on the side of her right hand, and I noticed that she had bruises on both hands. Ginny also said that there were other times when Bailey had been physically aggressive towards her mother, including when they were attending the Guinness Jazz Festival in Cork some years earlier. Now, interestingly, her statement was read out at the Paris trial. You see, Bailey bit her mother not once, but twice. Now, that act of biting, well, that's animalistic in and of itself. Now, often I've seen victims bitten by an abuser when they've also been sexually assaulted. And so that's deeply concerning and troubling behaviour. And if I were interviewing Jules, I would be asking questions about that. And just remember, in Bailey's diary, by his own admittance, he had written that he was an animal on two feet. Also in the last episode, I talked about the attack on Jules by Bailey on the 18th of August 2001 at their home. What I didn't tell you about that was that Bailey was later arrested at Cork Airport. He was leaving Ireland for England, with a couple of suitcases, and so it looks like he was trying to abscond. He denied it, of course, when asked by police, but it's that whole action and words piece, and when they're not congruent. Bailey was charged and prosecuted, and for that assault he received a three-month suspended sentence at Skibbereen District Court... And he spent three weeks in prison because he couldn't raise the money to make bail. Now just think about that for a moment. A three-month suspended sentence for a serious assault like that where Jules was almost killed. That's what he admitted to. And those who saw her injuries attested that they were very serious. But no prison time. A three-month suspended sentence. So what's the message that's being communicated? It's egregious in every way, and I still see this happening. And I want you, us, to think about at every stage what happens to the perpetrator and what happens to the victim. You see, whether a woman supports a prosecution or not, the state has a responsibility to protect women and girls. Violent and abusive men must be held accountable, and it makes me so angry. If you did this to a stranger, it would be seen as a serious assault and it should be seen as an aggravating factor, this level of violence being meted out on someone you're supposed to love and care for. And so even if Jules didn't want to support a prosecution, there were others who could have corroborated the attack, including medical professionals regarding the injuries. The other thing to tell you about is that Jules even took out two protective orders against Bailey, and so she must have known that he was a risk to her, and that tells me that she must have been scared. And I go back to, it's people's actions that tell the story. These are the things that you have to join up. Actions and words, are they congruent? She says she wasn't fearful of him, but yet she takes out two protective orders. And yes, they did end up living together later on, after those protective orders were taken out. And I have no doubt he probably talked his way back in. He probably said he was sorry. We know that he said that he was remorseful to my eternal shame. But what other choices and options did Jules have? If the courts don't see it as serious, victims may downplay it too. And of course, the abuser will do as well. It's in their nature and it's in their interest to do so. And Bailey later admitted that it was his third time assaulting Jules, but he said he wasn't violent. And we know both of those statements are not true. They're lies. Okay, so I've covered the domestic abuse. Well, the things that we know about, and I'm sure there's lots of things that we don't know about. That's always the nature of the beast. But whilst it's fresh in your minds, and before I go on and highlight other aspects of the case, I want to share with you key sections of the DPP's report regarding Bailey's behaviour towards women. Okay, so I'm going to direct quote from the report. So under the section headed alleged similar fact evidence and sexual motive. This is what he wrote. In memo of interview 10A at page 3, taken whilst Jules Thomas was in detention, she was asked, are you surprised Ian Bailey has been arrested for the murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier? She replied, yes. I can't believe it. I'm totally shocked. I'm not the type to show my feelings outwardly. I feel really sick inside. Ian is not capable of murder. She was asked, didn't Ian give you a bad beating? She replied, but I never felt threatened by him, and it only happens about once every four or five years. She was asked, didn't Ian pull the hair from your head? She said he did, but I never felt afraid for my life. Ian isn't capable of murder. I felt much more afraid with Chris. Now, Chris is a former partner. I felt much more afraid with Chris. Chris kicked me with his hobnail boots. Ian was very remorseful for what he did. He was very sorry about it. He promised me he'd never do it again. He told other people also how remorseful he was. I believed him. He drank whiskey. Whiskey has a terrible effect on him. I cannot trust him when he drinks whiskey. She was asked, didn't Ian promise you before that he wouldn't ever beat you again after the time in Cork? She replied, I believed him this time. She was asked, isn't it true that blood had to be washed off the wall after he assaulted you in cork? She replied, that was his blood, not mine. She was asked, did Ian ever bite you? She replied, he did. She said that Ian is a different man when he drinks whiskey. The principal assault on Jules Thomas did not require her to be detained in hospital. It related to a domestic incident and unfortunately such violence is not uncommon. What is uncommon is the brutal form of murder as Sophie Toscan de Plantier, whereby she suffered the infliction of approximately 50 wounds. End quote. Okay, so I just want to break this section down, and I'm sure you have many thoughts about it too. So firstly, Jules says that Ian is not capable of murder, and she says it twice. She says she feels sick inside. Well, my question is why? Who's she trying to convince here? Herself or them or both? She's asked about him beating her, and she lies three times for him. Firstly, she says she didn't feel threatened by him. Well, in that case, why did she get the protective orders out? Twice. Then she said it only ever happened once every four to five years. Well, that's okay then, I guess. Is that what she's saying? So that tells me that she's normalized it, but it's also a lie. He assaulted her in April, and then again in May, according to her daughter— And also, Colette saw bruises. So was this a different time, or the same time? She says it's when he drinks whiskey. So my question here is, when I speak to most victims, and we look at the abuse and what's happening, and we look at it on the power and control wheel, we tend to see that it's not just when someone drinks. But the question that I would follow up with is, so why does he keep on drinking whiskey, if that's the case? And she says that she cannot trust him when he drinks whiskey and apparently he drank whiskey in the pub the night that Sophie was killed. She also places a lot of weight in his being remorseful, but the point is he does it again after saying that he wouldn't. So it really counts for nothing. And the fact that he seems to be remorseful and says so to others, well, that still didn't prevent him from doing it again. Like I said before, you can say you're sorry, but it's empty if the behavior doesn't change. And Jules fails to see that. It's his shame, it's not hers, but it just shows how she's lost perspective and the grasp of reality and how she's been brainwashed by him to such a point she's lying for him and she doesn't see the red flags. Like, him biting her, not once, but twice, and possibly even more. Now, the DPP also says in his report that Jules wasn't hospitalised. As if it's not so serious. That's what I infer by that statement being in there. And there's that word incident again in inverted commas. Its usage highlights the failure to understand that this is a repeat pattern of behavior that may well escalate and that domestic abusers are the main cause of women being murdered. And he further emphasizes it's not so serious by stating that domestic abuse and domestic violence is not uncommon. And note, I'm not saying domestic abuse leads to femicide. You see, the problem is, when we say that, we take the actor out, the abuser, and I'm all about naming the problem, naming the abuser, and being absolutely clear who and what the problem is. And sadly, domestic abuse and domestic abusers are not uncommon because it's a huge cultural problem, where men like the DPP and countless others are doing nothing to challenge violent and abusive men, and nothing is being done to hold perpetrators to account. In fact, they're being enabled and given a free pass. None of this is okay. What it means is that there's a huge problem of male violence to women, And the DPP fails to make the links across violence towards women and girls as if attacks on women outside the home are something totally separate and that they must be taken much more seriously. Now, I discussed the links in my last episode and my analysis and research and the report that I published when I was working at New Scotland Yard using the police's own data entitled Getting Away With It, a profile of the domestic violence sexual offenders and serious offenders and the links in the show notes. And there's nothing like using and quoting the police's own data to challenge police and prosecutor practice, using the evidence base to challenge the status quo. And the report continues in our quote, The killing of Sophie Toscan du Plantier is not similar to the domestic violence in relation to Jules Thomas, and this is further emphasised by the further domestic incident set out in the file 4643, oblique 1, oblique 2001. As far as Colette Gallagher is concerned, she is a woman who spent a night in the Thomas Bailey household. Bailey got into her bed and rubbed her leg. Jules Thomas then entered the room. Bailey was annoyed. Colette Gallagher protested her innocence. No complaint was made to the Gardie. The Gardie described this incident as attempted rape, and that overstates the case. So breaking this down... Wow, isn't it remarkable how a man can totally minimise what happened and make out it's something incredibly minor? Just like that, in a couple of sentences. Four sentences to describe a terrifying ordeal that Colette suffered. Well, I just wonder how he might feel if a naked six-foot-four man got into his bed in the early hours of the morning and started touching his leg in a remote and isolated building away from everyone else. You see, these things that happen to women are not okay. We should not have to put up with it and then have a DPP of all people minimising it and saying, well, she didn't formally complain and that the guardie were overstating what it was. In this situation, I support the police's determination. It's exactly right. It's an indecent assault at the bare minimum. It's predatory behaviour. That's what it is, and at no time was consent given." The report continues. Carly Leftwick, brackets right, has alleged that during the course of a party she went to the toilet and met Bailey in the corridor. He allegedly picked her up and said, wrap your legs around me. She told him to put her down, which he did at once. The Guardi have described this as a sexual assault. No complaint was ever made. The evidence relating to this is consistent with the view that it was not a sexual assault, but it was a flirtatious act on the part of Bailey. When his approach wasn't welcomed, he immediately desisted therefrom. One witness on file who lived with Bailey for a time says, and inverted commas, Ian liked the ladies and the ladies liked Ian. Close inverted commas. Let's break it down. Wow. This DPP really doesn't care about women, hey? Carly Leftwick was clearly unhappy with being manhandled. Now again, why should women have to put up with this? And she didn't complain, no, because of attitudes like this dinosaur DPP. And no, it's not just a flirtatious act. Again, Bailey is six foot four, and the fact that he desisted when she challenged him, well, that's good in this case, but that doesn't mean to say that he always would. Perhaps someone else appeared or challenged him. Well, there could be many reasons why he stopped, but that doesn't mean to say that he would in every situation. And to explain it away as Ian liked the ladies and the ladies liked him. Well that's completely irrelevant, and it has no bearing here. It's pure sexism and misogyny, that's what it is. The report continues. The Guardi attribute a sexual motive to Bailey allegedly going to Sophie Toscan de to Plantia's house in the early hours of the morning before she was murdered. They say that he killed her because she rebutted his sexual advance. However, he doesn't appear to have been remotely upset by Carly Wright peremptorily dismissing his advance. This is not consistent with the scenario envisaged by the Garda in relation to Sophie. In fact, there is no evidence of a sexual motive in this case. References in the Garda report to a sexual motive are pure speculation. At the time Sophie was murdered, she was in her nightclothes, but had her boots on, which were laced and tied. The report continues... Ian Bailey is six foot two inches tall and powerfully built. Sophie was five feet four inches tall and petite. There is no evidence of sexual interference with her. Bailey is in his 40s. Prior to his recent conviction this year, he had no previous convictions for violent crime. The recent conviction relates to an incident which is trivial in comparison to the Duplantier murder. I'm just taking a deep breath and I'll continue. Sarah Limbrick, Bailey's former wife, who has known him since the 1970s, has asserted that he never used violence towards her person. When angry, he would strike the wall. She appears to loathe him as a person having endured difficult divorce proceedings and a dispute over property with him. And the report ends, a prosecution against Bailey is not warranted by the evidence. Wow. Where to begin? Okay, so the fact that Bailey behaved in one way to Carly when they were in a pub is a totally different context and scenario to what happened to Sophie. And what the DPP wrote is pure speculation too. Given Bailey's history and him being called a so-called ladies' man and being violent to Jules, well, it's not a stretch to believe the scenario laid out by the guardee. In fact, that's what I determined and Jim independently. And we've worked thousands and thousands of cases. In my opinion, it's up to the judge and jury to decide, based on everything that's put to them, whether this is a likely scenario or not. There are many cases where a sexual assault has not occurred, nor evidence found to corroborate one occurring, but a sexual motive is opined and proven. And to downplay Bailey's history of violence and the attack on Jules is just egregious. It's unbelievable. And he even goes one step further and says it's trivial. That's outrageous on every level and just displays and further underlines zero understanding of domestic abuse and zero empathy, quite frankly, towards victims. And given his job, my goodness, I wonder whether he had a daughter or family and if he would feel the same way if it happened to her or another woman in his life. So he determined what had happened to Jules was trivial, that Colette wasn't sexually assaulted when a naked six-foot-four Bailey got into bed with her while she was sleeping, and that because one woman told him to stop, and he did, that he couldn't possibly have struck out at someone who rejected him. Oh, and let's not forget what he said about Sarah, Bailey's first wife. He says that she didn't like him, and that's why she made allegations. The woman scorn trope. Well, again, it's absolutely outrageous, these judgments on women. Women he doesn't know, and has likely never met. In my opinion, this is a man who has a very low opinion of women, a misogynist, and I'm fuming. You see, if this is what he's prepared to commit to paper, Bloody hell, what happens when he really says what he thinks? He must think women are just fair game. And it's extremely alarming that all of Bailey's behaviors are excused. And this is exactly the kind of deep-seated misogyny and sexism that allows violent and abusive men to get away with their behavior. It's really disgraceful. And then what about Ginny's statement? She doesn't count? Well, apparently not. And I'm going to return to the DPP's report. But I do just want to deal with one last matter regarding Jules and the totality of circumstances, and it relates to what I'm calling the alibi non-alibi. This is what Jules said about that night once they got home regarding Bailey being in bed with her when she was interviewed for the podcast West Cork. Goodness me, if somebody had murdered someone, I don't believe they'd be able to behave absolutely normally the following morning. Do you? Do you think they could act that well? And he's useless
2: at lying. I just know what he was doing that night. All through the day, Jules had been insisting, just as Ian had, that he was with her all night on the night of the murder. Then, in the final few hours, she changed her story. The last statement they took from Jules told it differently. She has officially contested this statement. She says they twisted her words and made things up. But it tells another story of that night. Ian laid his clothes out before he came to bed on a cane chair outside the bedroom. His shirt, his jeans, his long black coat. Then they went to bed. But Ian tossed and turned, and Jules estimated about an hour later, which would be about 2 or 3 a.m., she felt Ian get out of bed. Jules didn't think much of it because he often got up in the night. She fell back into a deep sleep, And the next thing she knew, it was morning and Ian was bringing her coffee. And she noticed a fresh cut on his forehead. Jules said she said almost none of this, including the thing about the cut. But she must have said something about Ian leaving the bed because of what happened next. Jules said that Bailey left the bed that night, but he said that he
1: didn't. Then he changed his story and said that he did get up in the middle of the night to write an article. Jules then said that yes, he did get up and write an article and she knew exactly what he was doing that night. Well, interestingly, Nick Foster quotes Caroline Munjays and her statement to the police. Now, Caroline was a journalist working for Parry Match. That's a French magazine. And her statement was taken on the 8th of July, 1997. And she said that Jules had told her that she had taken pills that night because she had really bad period pains. She actually told her that she was out of it. Therefore, she wouldn't have known what Bailey was up to. And that was in her police statement. And then there's the next morning, the Monday, the 23rd of December. Both Jules and Bailey said that they didn't leave the cottage up until around 2 p.m. However, Fenella, Jules's daughter, said otherwise and that they left that morning. Well, apparently later on, Jules tried to pressurize her to change her statement. And Bill Fuller also said that he saw Jules out driving in the Fiesta near Sophie's on Monday morning. And James Camier said that a distressed Jules approached him on his stool that morning and said that there had been a murder. More about that in next week's episode. And then there's the Marie Farrell of it all. Or should I say Fiona? Now, a lot of listeners have written to me about Marie Farrell, asking my view of her and her changing her statements. And I've given this a lot of thought over time, and you've heard Jim and I touch on it, and you heard his view. Well, next week, I'm going to tell you mine. And so I'm going to end there. I'm going to give you time to process, digest, reflect, meditate, and breathe. And I'm still angry about what I've read in the DPP's report. And I'm going to tell you much more next week. So I hope you'll join me again next week for the next episode in the series. And until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced, and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios.